This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories. And now it's time for our Wall Street Journal story of the day. And the Wall Street Journal isn't just for business readers, folks. It's America's Journal. Pick it up. And once again, we're going to hear from their regular contributor and our resident doctor on the show, Dr. E. Wesley Ely, a professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University. And here's Dr. Ely sharing his moving story, What I Learned from a Dying Patient. I had a patient recently whose death was particularly harrowing. 39 years old, PhD, scientist, brilliant. She was sent to the ICU team as a fascinoma, meaning a person with a constellation of problems the doctors couldn't figure out. This woman had been physically fine until two months earlier, and now she was growing progressively short of breath, had a little blood in her urine, and had pain in her toes which were turning blue and red in the cold. Imaging showed that she had a growth on her aortic valve and that sections of her kidneys were dying. The doctors at the outside hospital had diagnosed her with blood clots in her lungs and started her on a blood thinner, but her condition kept worsening. As the day progressed, we started all the needed tests and interventions to help sleuth out the problems and fix them. Hours into my periodic conversations with her and her mother and sister, her mother mentioned that my patient was agnostic. I realized that up to that point, perhaps because of the sheer rapidity of the way things were unfolding, I had neglected to take a spiritual history. Since I teach medical students and residents in physical diagnosis class about the importance of taking a spiritual history, you'd think that I wouldn't fall prey to this oversight, but I had. The literature shows that most patients want to be asked about their spiritual beliefs or non-beliefs, and that many think it rude if healthcare professionals don't consider this important aspect of their well-being. The question should be asked out of respect and in a non-judgmental manner. Thus I said to her, Do you have any spiritual values that you want me to know about that might influence your medical decisions? We'll get to her answer in a minute. Within 24 hours of our meeting, the patient had been checked with an array of blood tests and imaging studies. And there it was. The biopsy showed angry cells with too much nuclear size for healthy cytoplasm and prominent nucleoli. Cancer. It was everywhere then. It became a whirlwind because she got shorter of breath by the hour as the cancer and fluid literally filled up her lungs. We went from her arrival in the hope of figuring out what was wrong and seeking a cure, talking about how when she got back to her lab and students, she'd resume where she'd left off, to the depths of despair. The patient's conversations with her sister were difficult, to say the least, and at times they both got weak. Eventually, they affirmed that they had to pave a way to prevent my patient's further suffering. With her mother, however, it was much worse. She looked at me through tears and fear and screamed, This is not fair! Over and over, her sister began printing off her will from an iPad and having things notarized. 
It was surreal. I won't forget my patient's look of shock and surprise, as if she'd heard me wrong. When I told her that the cells we'd seen under the microscope were cancerous, and that the cancer had already spread throughout her body. Only eight hours after we told her that she had this incurable illness, and that our hope, which at the time seemed plausible, was to get her off the ventilator so she could talk to her family, she stopped breathing and died quietly without any apparent awareness of suffering. Throughout the day, I had tried to be diligent about ensuring that she was able to spend time with her mother and sister. The initial challenge was to use a specific approach towards sedation that balanced her comfort and her clarity of mind so that she could really engage with the family. My last memory of this young scientist is that of her breathing, unconscious and unaware of her surroundings. At this point, she was newly comatose on the sedation and painkillers as we removed the breathing tube and ventilator. I urged her family, nevertheless, tell her what you want her to know. It helps families to have no regrets in the days that follow. The story is many things, and to you it no doubt means something different than it does to me. As this woman's physician, I find that one of the most enduring aspects of the story was the palpable oneness I felt with her, and in knowing how in sync we were with everything, body and mind. There was an unusually tight connection, and I sensed that we both knew it. Since antiquity, the greats such as Plato and Aristotle have taught us the concept of body, mind, and spirit as the fullness of existence, a triad still embraced by many today. My patient and I were in tune after talking about those first two, and then when I took her spiritual history, she perceived that our beliefs diverged. She affirmed what her mother had told me, yes, I'm agnostic, and it's okay that we differ on that. I nodded and was left to wonder how and why Without having talked about this earlier, she had both understood that we differed in this third piece of the triad and thought it important to offer me reassurance. An autopsy will answer many things, like what was growing on her heart valve and the source of her cancer, which we think was bowel, pancreatic, or ovarian. But no physical finding, microscopic sighting, or laboratory test is going to help me learn any more about her spiritual side. I remember her loving manner, and her inquisitiveness about life. I know that she was thinking of her estranged father, her students, and her nieces, whom she'd never see again. She wasn't sure about the existence of the divine, but her courage, daring to face what was happening despite not wanting to hear the worst possible news, utterly confirmed the human spirit. She revealed the connectedness we have in all of our imperfect, vulnerable lives, and I can still feel it now. And again, that's Dr. E. Wesley Ely, a professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University. He writes often for the Wall Street Journal and contributes here at Our American Stories, beautiful stories like that. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and it's time for our Lewis and Clark series, and we call it The Most Epic 
road trip ever. And we're following Lewis and Clark and their group of men, the Corps of Discovery, along their two-and-a-half-year adventure exploring the American West. Here's our own Alex Cortez with our ninth feature on what happened on these exact days in history over 200 years ago. Twentieth, August, Monday. William Clark, Journals. I am dull and heavy. Been up the greater part of last night with Sergeant Floyd, who is as bad as he can be to live. The motion of his bowels having changed and is the cause of his violent attack. We came to make a warm bath for Sergeant Floyd, hoping it would brace him a little. Before we could get him into this bath, he expired. With a great deal of composure. Before his death, Floyd said to me, I am going away. I want you to write me a letter. Presumably to his parents who outlived their son. Only 98 days into their 863-day journey, barely over one-ninth of the way through it, and one of them has died. Will more of the men standing to their right and to their left fall? At this rate, eight more of them should. One out of four of their band of brothers, the Corps of Discovery. When Floyd died, they really didn't know what had happened. We would do an autopsy today, we would have medical experts and coroners, and they would be able to determine exactly what killed him. We actually don't know. We're listening to Clay Jenkinson, the editor of the Lewis and Clark periodical, We Proceeded On. Lewis and Clark had to at least ponder the possibility that they were moving into some miasma, that there was some disease on the central Missouri River that they had no prior exposure to and that maybe they were all in danger. Unsettling that must have been not only to the captains and the other officers, but to every member of the expedition. Apprehensions that must have dwelled within them as they laid their man to rest. Back to Clark. We buried him to the top of a high round hill overlooking the river and country for a great distance. We buried him with all the honors of war and fixed a cedar post at the head of his grave with the name Sergeant C. Floyd died here. 20th of August, 1804. Captain Lewis read the funeral service over him. After paying every respect to the body of this deceased man who had at all times gave us proofs of his firmness and determined resolution to service to his country and honor to himself, we camped. And Sergeant Patrick Gass added these details in his journal. Interred his remains in the most decent manner our circumstances would admit. We then proceeded a mile further to a small river on the same side 
and encamped. Our commanding officers gave it the name of Floyd's River to perpetuate the memory of the first man who had fallen in this important expedition. And the first U.S. soldier to die west of the Mississippi. Here's the author of the essential Lewis and Clark, Landon Jones. The impact it had on them, I mean, they named the river Floyd's River for Floyd. This is the first time they've named any geographical feature after anybody in the expedition, or for that matter, any human being. I mean, they have not named it Jefferson's River or, you know, or anything like that. In a way, it was kind of a turning point. They are out there, they are now in the middle of Missouri, they're farther and farther away from civilization. And, and there's a sense that, you know, there's no going back now. I mean, people are dying, and this is what's happening, and we're pushing on. They're pushing on, but it's pretty darn scary not to know how Floyd died and what to do if any one of them proceed to get sick. The, the theory in the... 18th century, and it lasted, in fact, into the 19th century, was that when someone was ill, it was because there was poison in him, that something was toxic, to use our term. And so the way to eliminate the toxicity was to either eliminate the contents of the digestive tract or to remove toxic blood. And so the two standard methods of medical treatment was either to bleed the patient or to give him these diuretics, uh, like Dr. Rush's pills, which the men called Dr. Rush's thunderclappers. That's Dr. Benjamin Rush, the leading physician of the era. And so the pills would be the same thing as one gets today when you are going to have a colonoscopy and they give you this stuff and it just completely runs havoc through your digestive system and then whatever was toxic would have come out. But bleeding is a different matter entirely. What would happen in Jefferson's house was that there would be a basin and someone would open a vein in the arm. Then the vein would be allowed to drip out into this vessel and they would collect a pint or a quart of blood and then throw that away. So Jefferson, after seeing his wife Martha bled once, said never again, and didn't allow any bleeding at Monticello. He assumed it was a medieval hoax, a form of superstition. And we know that George Washington died in 1799. He had strep throat, as far as we can tell, and his doctors, no antibiotics. They had no way to know how to treat him, and so in despair, they began to bleed him. And many historians, including medical historians, believe that George Washington was literally bled to death. He died of dehydration and loss of blood because his doctors didn't know what else to do. So, you know, from our point of view, maybe the greatest single difference between the world of Jefferson and Lewis and Clark and ours is our medical system today. Charles Floyd would be evacuated by a medevac and he'd be taken to some field hospital and he would be immediately rehydrated. That's almost automatically the first thing that's done. And then a series of tests would have been made to determine what was wrong with him. And if it was appendicitis, he would have been operated on within a few hours and his life would certainly have been saved. So we live in a world of almost unbelievably sophisticated medical diagnosis and treatment. They lived in a world that was still mostly medieval. And that is so true. And many of these medical advances, by the way, were driven by the needs of exploration and war 
partially because those trying circumstances created more problems to solve, but also because both exploration and war require very pragmatic mentalities. Something either works or it doesn't work. Also, in the last two centuries, we've seen amazing breakthroughs in research, much of which began in the 1850s when scientists offered more and more evidence that most diseases were caused by bacteria and viruses, not, as we just heard, poison or bad air. That shift then led to the development of medicines like antibiotics that can save lives previously lost and vaccines that can eradicate entire diseases. Smallpox killed up to 60% of adults who were affected, 80% of kids, and that meant up to 500 million deaths in the 20th century. And today, thanks to smallpox vaccine, zero people die from this plague. The last case of smallpox anywhere in the world was in 1977. And we're going to get back to more of this great Lewis and Clark story. We love telling these stories inside the stories, though. I mean, a guy dies, and their only answer is bloodletting or a colonoscopy, basically. It's outrageous. And you have no idea what's, what's lurking out there that could kill your entire group. And so often on this show, we love to talk about the arc of innovation and how freedom creates so much in this great country. And here's a classic example. Today, this man possibly doesn't die, probably doesn't die. And so often in all of our lives, this happens and we take it for granted. When we come back, more on the life of Lewis and Clark. And as always, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to capture all that we do and listen to the other eight episodes. They're there. They're there for your listening pleasure. Thomas Jefferson did something remarkable with the Louisiana Purchase. But it took these men to figure out a contiguous water route to the Pacific. They were on their own, and it was a long journey. More of it after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the ninth edition of our Lewis and Clark series, the most epic road trip ever. Ordered a vote of the men for a sergeant. The highest numbers, Patrick Gass, 19 votes. In spirit with the finest of American traditions, Clark and Lewis ordered a democratic vote for the men to choose among themselves their own sergeants as Floyd's replacements. It does appear that the captains actually wanted the men to choose from among themselves. They were very concerned about esprit de corps. They knew that it was going to be a long journey. They knew that more men might die. They knew that this was going to be probably the most strenuous experience of anyone who was engaged in the expedition for their whole lives. And so they seem to have realized that it's very important to keep the men 
in harmony with this project, with this mission. As we, the American people, lead our own republic, helping bind us together, Clark and Lewis must have also known that the core of discovery leading their own future would bind them together, and they would need it for harrowing moments like this one that they sought out and just four days after their first death. Captain Lewis and myself concluded to visit a high hill. This hill, by all the different nations in this quarter, is supposed to be a place of devils, or that they are in human form with remarkable large heads, that they, remarkably, are very watchful and are armed with sharp arrows with which they can kill at a great distance. They are said to kill all persons who are so hardy as to attempt to approach the hill. They state that tradition informs them that many Indians have suffered by these little people, and among others, the three Mahar men fell a sacrifice to their merciless fury not many years since. So much do the Mahars, Atos, and other neighboring nations believe this fable, that no consideration is sufficient to induce them to approach this hill. Indians believe that it was haunted and that there were demi-devils, some sort of little miniature humans or creatures of some sort that could bedevil you if you went there, and that it was sort of a taboo zone. But what strikes me as interesting is that this comes relatively early. Boredom is an issue on a long journey like this, and so they're looking for diversions. And it could have been just a, a lark, you know, we'll go check out this dumb thing that Indians think is so spiritually engaged. But they were taking Jefferson's instructions very seriously. If there's something that needs to be investigated, then we should make every effort to investigate it. And here's Sergeant Ordway on what they found. We ascended the hill and found none of the little people there. And Clark continued. The only remarkable characteristic of this hill is that it is separated a considerable distance from any other. One evidence which the Indians give for believing this place to be the residence of some unusual spirits is that they frequently discover a large assemblage of birds about this mound. In my opinion, a sufficient proof to produce in the savage mind a confident belief of all the properties which they ascribe it. To me, Clark seems to be giving these Indians an easy pass for equating a lot of birds to evil spirits and little devils. But then Clay Jenkinson set me straight. There's some contempt in the way he says the savage mind. So it'd be like saying, well, these childlike people. Which is actually a compliment in Christianity where Jesus told the apostles to be childlike in their faith. Such a faith that many Indians and Clay Jenkinson still strive for to this day. I'm interested in spiritual vortices. So just the other day I went to Bear Butte in northwestern South Dakota, which is an ecumenical Native American spiritual site, one of the most spiritual places on the Great Plains. And you see all this extremely beautiful colored cloth. They buy yards of red and blue and yellow and white and black 
cotton cloth and then they tear it into strips and they put little pieces of tobacco in each strip and tie it up and then they create a, a prayer string like a rosary and they go to praise God, praise their God and to, and to pray for what they think they need and I go there every time I have something very serious that I want to sort out I don't know if it works for me but I know that it works for me to, to believe that putting yourself in a, in a, in a reverential and a sacramental attitude, wherever that might come, in a church, in a, in a synagogue, in a mosque, that these things are always concentrate your spiritual thinking and give you a chance to be relieved of the, the usual nonsense that floats through our brains. And so even now in the 21st century, I don't think that it is useful to utterly dismiss when native peoples in, in North America say something important is here. That they are tied to a heritage that we don't have because we're newcomers. They are tied to a spiritual way of seeing that we have abandoned deliberately in our culture. Um, they believe in spirit of place, that, that place is absolutely critical to one's complete um, soul's activity, one's, one's understanding, one's way of seeing, one's identity. Uh, they locate all these things in place much more than we do. We just happen to be in Denver, or happen to be in Seattle, or happen to be in New Orleans. Um, they look at it very differently, and so place matters to them in a way that we have a hard time sometimes understanding. And so if the, if the Dakota and the Lakota believe that this place has something special about it, then I'm disposed to at least be open-minded about that and not dismissive, because I think we've kind of reached the end from a certain point of view, we've reached the end of the Enlightenment paradigm where we thought that if you just measure everything, your lives will be happy and and fulfilled and, and humans will thrive on Earth. I think what we've discovered is that, the, that we all feel that there's something missing. So some go into New Age culture and, and some return to Catholicism or Lutheranism and some become Hindus or, or Buddhists or practice yoga or take psychotropic drugs or, or whatever it might be, but, but I think there's a widespread feeling in Western civilization in the 21st century that the, the Jeffersonian purely scientific rationalist and materialist paradigm doesn't cover all the ground. And so I want to be open to the possibility that there are things that I can't see because my uh, I'm tuned to AM, my soul is on AM, and the world is FM, and so once in a while, maybe I can see a little glimpse of a world that's not normally open to me. And if I'm going to look for guides to that, I'm not going to look to Buckminster Fuller or Norman Mailer or Barack Obama. I'm going to look to peoples who um, still go to places that are out of the way, and they go there because they believe that there's something there that enriches their spiritual life. The degree and type of spirituality ranged among the core of discovery, but they all were probably trying to tap into some feeling of security 
as they now entered the Sioux Indian country. Sioux Indians that were known for their ease with deathly confrontations. And when we come back, more of the most epic road trip ever, the Lewis and Clark story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with our ninth installment of our Lewis and Clark series, the most epic road trip ever. And we return to William Clark as he and the Corps of Discovery are entering Sioux Country. 29th August. At 4 o'clock, Sergeant Pryor, with about 70 Sioux, arrived. Sergeant Pryor informs that when he approached the Indian camp, they had a fat dog cooked as a feast for them, as a mark of their great respect for the party, of which they partook heartily and thought it good and well-flavored. Which doesn't sound very friendly to us, us 21st century cosmopolitans who love dogs. Dogs in Lewis Park is an interesting story. So Lewis carries with him a Newfoundland dog named Seaman, one of Lewis's closest intimates. As far as I can tell, the best relationships he ever had were with his mother, with the dog, and with Clark. The dog gets written about more often than, than many of the men. Lewis and Clark come from a culture that doesn't treat dogs the way we do. Now, we've made a fetish out of dogs to the point that I think it would disgust Thomas Jefferson and almost any person of that era. That's a relatively recent phenomenon. Dogs would have been treated the way ranchers treat dogs, that they, they bark when something's wrong. You know, you, you feed them and maybe you pet them from time to time, but they're not, they don't sit on your lap. We have to get out of our mind the way we think about dogs. But nevertheless, Native peoples looked on dogs very differently. So before the horse, the horse had come to the Yankton Eye uh, probably in the 1740s. They adopted the horse instantaneously and it became an essential figure in their world. But prior to that, the only animal that Native peoples had ever domesticated was the dog. So these would be not schnauzers or dachshunds or terriers. These would be essentially semi-tamed wolves. And they had domesticated them to a certain degree. But every account says that they were snarly and vicious. And so the dogs were used to haul goods. They were actually hitched to travois, and the dogs would haul teepee poles and food and so on from one encampment to another. And so that was the primary use of dog. But many of the cultures also used dogs as sacrifices, that on special occasions they would take a dog, I suppose we would say it would be like our taking something of very great value, and they would slaughter it, and then they would serve it up as a special gift of hospitality to honored guests. So that's what happens. And the next day, the Corps of Discovery reciprocated with their very own gifts and a challenge to make peace 
with the other Indian nations. They gave them until the morning to think about it. They must have needed the time. And in the meantime, the Indians gave a performance where peace was not the central theme. Here's Joseph Whitehouse. As soon as dark set in, they commenced their dancing in a curious manner before us. One party of them sung and kept time with the drum, whilst the remainder of them danced, especially the young men, commencing their dancing by a loud whoop, and then they would stop and then whoop. Some one of their warriors would get up in the center and point towards where the different Indian nations lived and make a speech, telling what feats he had done, how many he had killed, how many horses he had stole from them, all of which among these Indians make them great men and warriors and much esteemed by their nation. Yeah, talk about tone deaf. Lewis and Clark are asking peace of these guys, and they're bragging about death. In this culture, a person who had killed others or who had counted coup or who had stolen horses or who had done something remarkable was expected to boast about it. That's not the way it works for us. That kind of boasting is not usually regarded as good form. But it was expected in this world that the dance would be going on and there would be drumming and young couples would be going off to romance each other in the shadows at the edge of the tribe. But in the center, there would be this very big event, this dance, and you just have to think of the drum, this kind of monotonous but mesmerizing drum going on and all this dancing and the, and the, and the whistling and the shrieking uh, that happens when young native men dance their fancy dances. And so then one of these young men would dance forward and say, I killed 17 people or I killed a man two weeks ago and, and he was much bigger than I was, but I was able to kill him because I was, I'm a better man. And, and then the others would murmur their assent, but if somebody was boasting about something that he didn't really deserve to boast about, there would be, it would be clear that the crowd was not as willing to agree to that person's self-regard. So all this is going on, and Lewis and Clark are, I'm sure, just fascinated by this. I'm sure they regard it as barbarism and savagery and exceedingly primitive. But nevertheless, this is great, and the energy level in an encampment like this is just through the roof. But when they see the scalps and, and they see the boasting and women have scalps on their dresses and on poles and the men are talking about killing, they're carrying Jefferson's peace policy and, and they're expected to tell every tribe they meet, all right, war is bad, peace is good, trade is great, you should live in peace with your neighbors. If you want our friendship and our trade goods and if you want traders to come here on a routine basis and improve your lives, you need to stop all that you will find that being peaceful is infinitely more advantageous to your tribe than this incessant warfare, which we just can't respect, and we do strongly urge you to desist from continuing. So that's their message. So I think the reactions are a couple here. One, fascination. Two, now we have to lecture them because this is clearly not what Mr. Jefferson has in mind. And number three, I think they thought, oh, you know, the we better be careful here because if something happens, if there's an incident, these are not Quakers. This could easily turn out to be something pretty formidable. So I, I think this is a great moment. I think that the sojourn with the Yankton is, is one of the truly greatest episodes in the entire expedition. And the Indians weren't done. Their greatest performance, they'd actually hold off on delivering until tomorrow. 
and it would carry a message of their own. Here's William Clark recalling it. 31st of August. At 8 o'clock, the chiefs and warriors met us in council. First chief spoke, My father, I am glad to hear the word of my great father. This chief is referring to the President of the United States. And all my warriors and men about me are also glad. My father, we are very glad you would take pity on them this day. We are poor. My father, we are very sorry our women are naked and all our children no petticoats or clothes. My father, I want to listen and observe what you say to bring about a peace between all Indians. My father, listen to what I say. I had an English medal when I went to see them. I went to the Spaniards. They gave me a medal and some goods. I wish you would do the same for my people. And now Clark continues with his recollection of the second chief's speech. My father, my father was a chief and you have made me a chief. I am a chief agreeable to your word. As I am a young man and inexperienced, cannot say much. What the great chief has said is as much as I could say. The poor guy suffered from stage fright. Here's Clark recounting the third chief's speech. My fathers, I have been a great warrior, but now I hear your words. I will bury my hatchet and be at peace with all. My fathers, you have given five medals. I wish you to give five kegs with them of powder. According to Clay Jenkinson, this wasn't the first time these Indians had given this grand and some might say pitiful performance. These tribes have already seen plenty of white men and what they knew was white men come for a purpose. So what's the purpose that white men come for? Well, they come to trade. They don't come here because they're bored with their lives and they've decided to wander up the Missouri. They come here in boats and they come to buy things from us, furs, essentially, and they come to trade things with us, some of which we really want, like guns and ammunition. And so that's, that's the expectation. A group of strangers who are clearly white come around to bend in the river, and they have three boats, one of them huge. This has to be a trading expedition. So this is good news, because first of all, we want to trade with them and not let them get beyond us to trade with the people upriver who may be our enemies. We want to monopolize this trade to the extent that we possibly can. And we want what's in those boats because we know that white men have great stuff. So that's what they see. And so I think that when the native speakers say, we're poor, my wife is naked, and so on, this is not their first rodeo. They've seen white traders before and they know that they have to persuade the traders to sell them the things they want and they're going to cajole them and they're making the most out of their poverty you know give us a good trade deal here you should give us gifts look how poor we are you're rich why why would you come here with all of your wealth and you see us here in this destitute state you should have pity on us and give us whiskey and you should give us ammunition and 
gunpowder and you should give us whatever's in those boats. And if you're holding back, you should be ashamed of yourselves because look at how destitute we really are. I think that's what's probably going on there. But this is a well-rehearsed cultural response that Native peoples have developed in the course of the 50 or 60 years of prior trade on this portion of the Missouri. And there you have it, the ninth segment, the Lewis and Clark Expedition, Cora Discovery, the most epic road trip ever. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org, listen to the first date, and look forward to number 10. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and the nightmare of modern terrorism in the Middle East took a shocking and radical turn in 1972, more than 1,000 miles from the Holy Land. Radical Palestinians, unable to achieve their goals through a war or diplomacy, massacred 11 Israeli athletes at the Munich Olympics in Germany. The slaughter on innocents was carried out on the world stage, with nearly a billion people watching on television. What the world didn't see was the Israeli response. This is the story of the 1972 Munich Olympic Massacre and how Israel unleashed an elite team of intelligence agents dedicated to justice and revenge. On this day in history in 1972, America got news that the 11 members of Israel's Olympic team and four Arab terrorists were killed in a 23-hour drama that began with an invasion of the Munich Olympic Village. Here's the story of the lead-up, the fallout, and the climactic revenge, Operation Wrath of God. Nearly every week on television and in newspapers, we witness a blood feud between Israelis and Palestinians that has gone on for decades. It was in the late 1960s when this cycle of violence began to escalate. After the small, New Jersey-sized nation of Israel soundly defeated the Arab coalition in the 1967 Six-Day War, Palestinian terrorist groups turned to increasingly spectacular acts of evil to get world attention. Israel defended itself as it always had, but 1972 would be the turning point. On May 8th of that year, four members of a Palestinian terrorist group hijacked the Boeing 707 aircraft with 10 crew members and 90 passengers, 67 of them Jewish, and landed it in the heart of Israel, Tel Aviv. Soon after taking command, the two men and two women hijackers armed with hand grenades, a revolver, and two five-pound explosive devices separated the Jewish hostages from the others and sent them to the back of the aircraft. The captain relayed the terrorist demands that 315 convicted Palestinian terrorists be released from Israeli prisons or they would blow up the airplane with its passengers. Israel's policy was never to negotiate with terrorists or never to back down. Prime Minister Golda Meir ordered an assault on the aircraft. 
The mission was led by Israel's elite anti-terror unit, commanded by Ehud Barak, and joined by Benjamin Netanyahu. Both will become future prime ministers. Israeli commandos approached the aircraft, disguised as aircraft mechanics in white jumpsuits. They immediately kill the two male hijackers and apprehend the two females. Here's Ehud Barak on the incident. It took just uh, 90 seconds uh, before we stormed it, killed two of the uh, uh, terrorists. Israelis interviewed the two captured female terrorists who admitted they were members of Black September, an amorphous branch of the terrorist organization Fatah. Founded by Yasser Arafat, Fatah is the most radical wing of the Palestine Liberation Organization, better known as the PLO. The man who ordered the hijacking was Arafat's protege and Fatah's commander, Aleh Hassan Salame. Two weeks after the hijacking, Salame's name came up again in connection with a bloody massacre that left 24 dead, 78 wounded, at the same airport. Two of the three terrorists died and the third was arrested, but Israel had not heard the last of Salame or Black September. Here's Benjamin Netanyahu. After that, they realized they can't hijack Israeli planes. If they go to Israel with somebody else's plane and uh, try to extort something there, they'll be killed. So they figured they'd go somewhere else. Somewhere the whole world would be watching. The 1972 Munich Olympics. Israel. Munich's Olympic Games were carefully constructed to convey the message that Germany's rehabilitation was complete. That 1936, when Berlin under Adolf Hitler hosted the 11th Olympiad against a backdrop of discrimination and violence was a relic of a dead past. Italian. The German organizers didn't want the world to see them holding guns, which might evoke old images. No armed guards or police were positioned in the Olympic Village or at stadium entrances. Security costs for the games came to $2 million. This relatively insignificant sum was not born of miserliness, but of a frank desire to keep security to a minimum. In contrast, the 2004 Olympic security costs exceeded $1 billion. Germany, Cologne Airport, Wednesday, August 23rd, 1972. A middle-aged couple wait for their four pieces of luggage to arrive. The man, dressed in a well-tailored suit, hoists the bags onto two carts and heads towards the customs line and the exit beyond. The Palestinian man is a courier for Fatah and its black September wing in Europe. His accomplice, posing as his wife, is there to lend legitimacy to their cover. The couple are asked to open their bags. The husband refuses. He begins to yell and scream, I am a businessman, not a criminal. The customs officials have seen this act before. They point to a bag and ask him to open it. The man reluctantly opens the suitcase. Lingerie, in many colors and styles, covers the inspection desk. The officer motions to the man, close your case and carry on. What the German officer doesn't know is that the three pieces of luggage he failed to inspect contains eight AK-47s, dozens of magazines loaded with 7.62 millimeter bullets, and 10 hand grenades. 
The operation is on track. With 13 days to go before the attack, the terrorists have time to kill. They choose nicknames for themselves. One member of Black September calls himself Che Guevara as a tribute to his hero, the bloodthirsty Cuban communist sidekick of Fidel Castro. The rest of the eight Palestinians take in the sights, make dinner plans, and catch up on sleep. One even goes to two Olympic volleyball games. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story here on Our American Stories, The Massacre at the Munich Olympics. This is Our American Stories, and we continue now with a heck of a story. And by the way, you're wondering, well, there's nothing American about this story. But as you know, the special relationship this country has with England, with Israel, with Australia, makes them American stories, too. And our experience with terrorism, the radical Islamic variety, makes us very close cousins to Israel. And now let's pick up where the story left off the 1972 Munich Olympic Massacre. Tuesday, September 5th, 1972. Day 10 of the Olympics. A bus filled with the sounds of backslapping and laughter arrives back at the Olympic Village. The jubilant Israeli athletes just spent an evening at the theater. At 4.30 a.m. on September 5th, as the athletes sleep, Eight tracksuit-clad members of Black September carry duffel bags loaded with AK-47 automatic rifles, semi-automatic pistols, and hand grenades. Where are you guys from? As they are about to scale the six-foot barrier into the Olympic Village, they're immediately spotted. I don't speak English, man. A few tipsy American athletes sneaking back into the village after a night on the town Let's help them over. quickly assist them in getting over the chain-link fence. Here you go. Let's go. I got you. Come on. The terrorists encountered no guards, but to the sober eyes of six German postal workers, the men seem suspicious. They report the break-in, but no action is taken. Once inside, the Black September members change their clothes and load their weapons. With a stolen key, they attempt to enter the apartment housing the Israeli delegation. But the lock won't turn. The jiggling of the key immediately wakes Yusuf Gutfreund, a six foot three, 285 pound international wrestling referee. The terrorists flip the lock and open the door. But Gutfreund stands in the hall, staring at the masked men as he throws the full weight of his body and strength against the door. One of the terrorists quickly wedges the steel barrel of his AK-47 between the door and the frame and begins using it as a crowbar. The weightlifting coach, a Holocaust survivor who lost his entire family on German soil, hears the commotion and sees the masked terrorist slowly gaining entrance. He yells to his flatmates to run for their lives as he throws himself out the back window and escapes. The terrorists overpower Gutfreund and charge into the room. 
wrestling coach Moshe Weinberg is shot through the cheek while trying to fight off the intruders. A 106-pound Israeli wrestler slaps at one of the terrorist barrels and runs down to the underground parking garage as one of the terrorists follows him, spraying gunfire in his direction. He also escapes. Then, the wounded Weinberg, holding a rag on his bullet-holed cheek, makes another attack, knocking one of the intruders unconscious and slashing another with a fruit knife before being shot to death. Weightlifter Yusuf Romano, a veteran of the Six-Day War, also attacks and wounds one of the terrorists before being shot and killed. That September morning in 1972, the people of Munich wake to the sound of sirens and the rumble of military trucks. Flickering police lights paint the city blue at dawn. The news is breaking all over the world. The peace of what is what have been called the Serene Olympics was shattered just before dawn this morning, about five o'clock. Here's Peter Jennings with the live broadcast. If I were to guess at the moment at which of the commando organizations this group is to come from, I'd be most likely to narrow in on a group called Black September. I was a reporter based in Lebanon, and if you were an American reporter working for an American news agency in Beirut, you knew all the characters because the Palestinians were very open about many of the things they were trying to accomplish, and so we knew some of the players. Didn't always know what they were doing, and God knows what they were going to do. And they've taken nine members of the Israeli delegation hostage. It now appears that Black September has tossed a piece of paper out the window, a list of demands. A man with a stocking mask on his face. Weird. What's going on inside that head and that mind? The terrorists demanded the release of 234 prisoners who were being held in Israeli jails and also some who were being held abroad. Um, but Golda Meir would have, would have none of it. She just rejected their demands outright. Instead, Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir sends two officials to Germany, one of them the head of Israeli's intelligence and special operations organization, the Mossad. His name, General Zvi Zamir. He intends to help the Germans deal with the volatile situation. Here's General Zamir. We were the first to suffer from terrorism, and as a result of that, we were the first to train uh, units to deal with terrorism, you see. Although Germany has no anti-terrorism units, they politely refuse Golda Meir's offer. Instead, local German government officials handle the crisis, which is to say, the incompetence level during the hostage crisis will be absolute. By 5 p.m., the Palestinians demand an airplane to take them and their hostages to an unspecified Arab country. The Germans agree, counting on ambushing the terrorists at the airfield. German authorities transport the terrorists and their hostages to Furstenfeldbruck Airport. Heading to an airport called Furstenfeldbruck. In his book, Stateless, the commander of Fatah shared why he chose the Munich Games as his target. To use the unprecedented number of media outlets in one city to display the Palestinian struggle, for better or worse. Around the world, viewers hunkered in front of their TVs, watching and waiting for the outcome. The latest word we get from the airport is that, quote, all hell is broken loose out there. At the airport, a novice German police force set up a decoy airplane to lure the terrorists into the line of their sniper fire. But as the terrorists board the plane, the pilots and the crew are gone. This is ridiculous. 
Little do they know that just 15 minutes prior, a group of 13 German officers from the Police Special Task Command Force abandoned the plane and their mission for fear of their lives. He's right. We can't do any good here. They took a last-minute vote. It was unanimous, and their commander supported their decision wholeheartedly. With an empty plane, the terrorists immediately assume it's a trap. And uh, it all went horribly wrong. It degenerated into a battle, uh, and the hostages were in the middle of this. They were manacled and shackled in the, in the back of the helicopters. And all this time, the two Israelis who come over to try and help the rescue operation were standing there watching this, and impotent, really. They were, they were powerless to, to do anything um, because the battle had begun. German snipers eliminate five of the eight terrorists in the chaotic gunfight. Oh my god. But before their deaths, the members of Black September murder all nine of the chained Israeli hostages. The three surviving terrorists are held in police custody. Rumors rage. The media pounce. We have reports now that all the hostages, all nine hostages, are safe. The international news agency Reuters sends out an exclusive wire report. It reads, all Israeli hostages have been freed. And according to these reports, all Arab terrorists have died by German gunfire. The good news spreads like wildfire, and the world celebrates. In Israel, relatives and friends show up at athletes' family homes with flowers and champagne. Then, just after three in the morning, the truth finally reaches the media when Reuters sends a corrected message over the wires. Flash, all Israeli hostages seized by Arab guerrillas killed. ABC's Jim McKay broadcasts the devastating update to the world. He looks straight into the camera and says, We've just gotten the final word. You know, when I was a kid, my father used to say, our greatest hopes and our worst fears are seldom realized. Our worst fears have been realized tonight. They've now said that there were 11 hostages. Two were killed in their rooms this mo yesterday morning. Nine were killed at the airport tonight. They're all gone. They're all gone. Jews have been led yet again to their death on German soil. Only 27 years passed since 6 million Jews were herded into camps and murdered. As the relatives of the Munich victims gather to bury their dead, Israeli security officials plot revenge. I think it was a great shock. It was a great shock because it showed you what kind of uh, lack of uh, inhibition, uh, lack of any moral constraints uh, this terror had. It was, if it was supposed to break our morale, it didn't. And that was Benjamin Netanyahu still fighting the same fight today as the Prime Minister. The civilized world fighting the same fight against radical Muslims, radical Islamists. More on the 1972 Munich Olympic massacre after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the Olympic massacre in the 1972 Munich Olympic Games and Israel's response to this horror. In Jerusalem, Prime Minister Golda Meir tells Parliament that Israelis will go after the terrorists responsible. We will smite them wherever they may be. First, Golda's airstrike response looks like previous skirmishes, but this is just the beginning. Golda wants to set a new standard. She realizes Israel can no longer afford to respond and retaliate. The Talmudic imperative to rise and slay the one who comes to kill you needs to be fulfilled to the letter of the law, she says. Prime Minister Mayer authorizes the assassination campaign. They call it Operation Wrath of God. Terror will soon arrive at the terrorist doorstep. Initially, it was the intention of the hijackers. If Operation Wrath of God has any lingering doubts, they are erased by events on October 29th, 1972. Just a month and a half after Munich. Lufthansa jet was hijacked coming from Damascus. The hijackers demanded the release of three killers who survived Munich, and the Germans said yes instantly. The three terrorists celebrate their freedom with a press conference. Look at them. The movie stars. Did you shoot any of the Israeli hostages? Uh, it's, not, it's not important to, to say if I, kill, uh, if I killed Israel. It is clear that if those who planned and carried out the attack at Munich were ever going to pay for what they did, only Israel could extract that payment. Operation Wrath of God would be the instrument of its revenge. That was the first time, I think, in the history of Israel, and maybe in the history of the world, that a state decided to pursue a policy of personal killing uh, in a systematic way. Golda lights a Chesterfield. 11-8. Give us the order and we begin. A committee led by Mayer draft a secret hit list of Black September members. Ambushed and slaughtered again. While the rest of the world is playing games, Olympic torches and brass bands and dead Jews in Germany. And the world couldn't care less. We've responded. We sent 70 fighters. Response no one heard. Airstrikes on guerrilla training centers, that's a response. The Israeli intelligence agency Mossad supplies the committee with dossiers on the Palestinian members. Number one on the list was Ali Hassan Salame. Let me remind you, Ali Hassan Salame, he invented Black September. He is the architect of the Munich murders. There's people. They're sworn to destroy it. Because I don't know who these maniacs are and where they come from. Palestinians. They're not recognizable. You tell me what law protects people like these. Today I'm hearing with new ears. I've made a decision. The responsibility is entirely mine. Salame is the operation's chief of Black September and the mastermind behind Munich and the Palestinian hijackings. 
For all his bloody activities, the Israeli media crown him the Red Prince. He was really um, a protege of Yasser Arafat. Yasser Arafat publicly declared him to be his son, in inverted commas, and um, he was really uh, something of an aristocratic hero within the Palestinian, among the Palestinian people. Operation Wrath of God is underway as Mossad agents fan out across Europe and the Middle East. The first target on Mossad's secret assassination list is a black September operative working as a translator at the Libyan embassy in Rome. He had no idea the Israelis were coming for him. He uh, ate dinner that night with a friend um, and walked home to his apartment block. He stopped off to buy some groceries, uh, made a couple of phone calls and then walked into the, the entrance hall where he lived when two Israeli agents emerged from shadows and shot him with um, small caliber pistols. Over the next six months, Mossad agents hunt down and kill three other Palestinian terrorists hiding in Europe. They came up with quite intricate, um, sophisticated ways of killing people, uh, including uh, bombs that were detonated uh, by telephone calls. Um, they put landmines under car and under somebody's car seat. Uh, they blew people up in their ho hotel bed. Here's Bassem Abu Sharif, Yasser Arafat's chief advisor. The uh, PLO at that time uh, urged all who have relationship to the PLO and their offices to be on the alert because they're expecting that Israel would carry such uh, terrorist operations. By the spring of 1973, Israel cooks up a mission that will strike fear into the heart of Black September and the PLO. Beirut, a one million person coastal city 75 miles north of Israel's border. Beirut is a notorious factory for terrorism. At the time, of course, Beirut wasn't like uh, Europe. It was an armed uh, city where they would have been quite prepared to um, attack and kill any, Israelis, uh, any Israeli soldiers that they saw. But these Israeli agents will not be seen. For this operation, Mossad will enlist Israel's elite special force, known simply as the unit. Lieutenant Colonel Ehud Barak is in charge. We felt very self-confident that we can do whatever we need to, to do. There's the scalpel and there's the sledgehammer. The sledgehammers, the cruise missiles, and the Air Force coming in and laying down carpet of bombs. The, the, the unit is a scalpel. And this operation is most definitely a surgical strike. Mossad learns that three top-level Fatah targets live in the same apartment block on the Rue Verdun just beyond the American and British embassies and the luxury seaside hotels. They were the planners, they were the military um, commanders, and they were very, very close to Yasser Arafat. It's Israel's most audacious counter-terrorism mission to date. The intended message, our reach is long. We can find you anywhere. The motive, deterrence, prevention, revenge. Here's how it goes down. Ehud Barak turned up at the, uh, uh, the commando's base and slapped down on the table the three photographs of the individuals they were going to target. And uh, people who were there have said this murmur of anticipation ran through the room. I told him, these are the guys. They try to photograph their faces. We are going to uh, go and find them. As they trained to go and find them, they realize that a group of young Israeli men, 
moving through the streets of Beirut might easily blow up their operation, so they decide to disguise themselves as couples on a date. The shortest warriors dress in drag. Barak is the hot brunette. A future Israeli general and deputy head of the Mossad are the blondes. The men hide their weapons and explosives under their jackets. The ladies stash Uzi submachine guns in their fashionable purses and hide hand grenades under their braziers. The idea is show the people something very unthreatening, they won't even notice it, and you can walk right by even a police officer, as they did in this case. And when we come back, the final installment in this riveting story, the Israeli response to the massacre in Munich. They weren't just looking for justice, they were looking for revenge. This is Our American Stories, the final segment in our hour-long recollection. Look back at the Israeli response to the massacre in Munich, the massacre at the 1972 Olympic Games. Let's listen to the final chapter. On April 9th, 1973, Israeli naval missile boats depart from Haifa Naval Base carrying the unit's top 16 commandos and rubber Zodiac speedboats. The ladies cover their heads with plastic ponchos to protect their wigs and makeup-covered faces from the sea spray. When the missile boats reach the shores of Beirut, the inflatable Zodiacs are lowered into the water. To avoid being heard, they cut the engine several hundred yards from the shore and begin to paddle. A lot of manpower to shoot three guys. They were met by waiting cars with Mossad agents behind the wheel. And then they drove them through Beirut, through the city, through traffic. The agents from the Mossad had found out where they lived and had even gotten blueprints of the houses, the apartment, the apartments where they were living, right outside of Beirut. A broad-shouldered man in a suit two sizes too big for him, walks hand-in-hand with Barack the brunette towards the entrance of their target. The other couples follow along while staying in character. The unit meets strong resistance early on from nearly 100 militants guarding the apartments. They engage in a close quarters battle. The doorman runs into the apartment and cries out in a garbled voice, the Jews are here. Within minutes, 
three of the PLO's highest level leaders are dead. The soldiers shove piles of paper into waterproof bags and race down the stairs. As the unit exits into the street, they run into a firefight with Lebanese police, who are quickly beaten back. Mossad agents drive the commandos back to the beach, abandon their rented Buick Skylarks, and return to the missile boats in their rubber Zodiacs. It took us the whole operation from the time we landed to the time we were back in the sea some 30 minutes. By the time the sun rises over Beirut, Barak and his men are back in Israel. The Israelis assassinated three Palestinian leaders who all lived in this one apartment building. Altogether, they killed or injured as many as 40 Lebanese and Palestinians. I remember the town was in shock when they invaded Beirut itself. And in the dead of night, just stitched these guys in their apartments. The sense of vulnerability was enormous. In Lebanon, the government collapses in the aftermath of the attack. Arab newspapers publish eyewitness accounts of two beautiful women, one a blonde, one a brunette, fighting terrorists in the streets of Beirut, keeping police, army, and Palestinian operatives at bay with long bursts of automatic gunfire. Stories abound, myths grow. Yet the most important target, and most elusive, is still at large. The Israelis were so keen to assassinate Ali Hassan Salameh that they um, uh, searched all over Europe for him. They weren't sure where he was uh, based or, or, or even really sure what he looked like at the time. He was very cautious and careful and moved from one place to, to another, never, never stayed at the same place. He was a very, very difficult target. Mossad agents pick up traces of Salame throughout Europe, but the leads run cold. Then, on July 14, 1973, Mossad gets a tip that a low-level courier has a scheduled rendezvous with the Red Prince. Fourteen Israeli agents follow the courier to a tiny town in Norway called Lillehammer. For two days, they do not let the Red Prince out of their sight. There is, however, a junior member of the Israeli team who has her doubts about whether this is actually Salame, but she is overruled. On the night of July 21st, as Salame walks with a woman up a deserted street, two Mossad agents jump out of their car, withdraw their silenced Berettas, and shoot the man ten times at close range. The woman screams as the mastermind of Munich falls to the ground. But junior backup agents make a fatal error. As they speed out of the sleepy Norwegian town, a lone Lillehammer police officer takes down their license plate number. The morning after, they drive the same car to the Oslo airport and are arrested. One of the agents who has serious claustrophobia spills the beans on the operation and discloses the locations of many Israeli safe houses across Europe. It is an international embarrassment for Israel. As bad as this is, the team makes a bigger mistake. The man they killed is not Ali Hassan Salame. Here's former CIA officer Sam Wyman. When you have a team that is that expert and that skilled and that well-trained, when there is disagreement from one of those expert, well-trained people, history has shown us you ought to listen. Five of the six Israeli agents serve a maximum sentence of 20 months, a slap on the wrist. To many, 
This is evidence that European governments quietly condone the actions of the Israeli hit teams. But back in Israel, one of Golda Meir's worst nightmares has come true. The murder in Lilyhammer was seen as such a disaster um, for Israeli intelligence that Golda Meir and the Israeli uh, government decided to suspend um, Operation Wrath of God and put a, whole, uh, put a hold on, on future assassination operations. Mossad hit teams lie dormant for five years. During this time, in 1974, Golda authorizes a hit on PLO leader Yasser Arafat. But low visibility prevents aerial reconnaissance from confirming Arafat's location. The mission is aborted. That same year, Arafat is given a hero's welcome at the United Nations, just two years after the Munich massacre. Standing right behind him and sharing in the spotlight is Arafat's close friend, the architect of Munich, Ali Hassan Salame. In 1978, five years after Operation Wrath of God was suspended, Mossad is given a green light once more and zero in on Salame, who was working at PLO headquarters in Beirut. He had uh, lowered his guard. He was following a pretty regular daily routine. Uh, the, the Israeli agents soon realized from surveillance uh, where he was living and where he would work and people he would visit. January 1979. Salame leaves his home in the afternoon and gets into his tan Chevrolet, accompanied by two bodyguards. Two more bodyguards climb into the Land Rover and follow behind. The Chevy rolls towards a rented Volkswagen Bug that is packed with 11 pounds of plastic explosives, equal to 70 pounds of dynamite. A Mossad agent stands 100 yards away on the balcony of her rented apartment and watches the convoy approach. She flips the switch on the detonator as the Chevrolet rolls past. As the smoke clears, the car lays obliterated in the middle of the street. Inside, 38-year-old Ali Hassan Salame is dead. Well, Salame was seen as, as almost a, a, an aristocrat within the Palestinian community. He was, he was uh, revered by many people, idolized by many others. Um, and his death came as a huge shock to, um, uh, to Palestinians. He had a huge funeral. Yasser Arafat shed tears and uh, hugged uh, Ali Hassan Salame's young son um, and really uh, uh, was visibly moved and deeply upset by, by the attack. The Israelis, by contrast, of course, were completely delighted um, about his death. It is seven years in the making, but Israel feels they finally avenged Munich and made their country and the world a safer place. Two of the three terrorists who survived Munich were also reported killed in the late 70s. There's only one surviving terrorist who was involved in the actual attack at Munich. That's a, a man called Jamal Al-Kashi, um, who still lives in hiding now. Um, he still lives in fear of his life and thinks the Israelis may try to assassinate him. In 1999, a Hollywood film crew accomplished something that even the Mossad was unable to do. They locate Jamal Al-Gashi and convince him to sit down for an interview for their Oscar-winning documentary, One Day in September, narrated by Michael Douglas. 
The almost fully silhouetted Palestinian reflects on the massacre of 11 innocent Israeli athletes 27 years after their deaths. I felt great pride and happiness that I would be participating in an operation against the Israelis. I was finally going to fulfill my dream. Today, he is reportedly hiding somewhere in Africa. This is Our American Stories. Great job on that, Greg, as always on these pieces. And for anybody listening and understanding that things haven't changed in all these years, and in some ways they may actually be worse, there's no talk right now of a two-state solution. We have Hamas inside the West Bank with a covenant that urges the destruction of Israel and swears by the destruction of Israel. And of course, the response from the Israelis, the only response possible, hunt them down, kill them. To the end. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Operation Wrath of God. The Olympic Massacre in Munich in 1972. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to listen to stories like this and more.